coming up on episode 203 of Wheel Bearings. In the garage, we've got the 2021 Mazda CX-9 Signature, the Mercedes-Benz E450 Wagon, the Hyundai Sonata, and the Aston Martin DBX. And in the news, we talk about the Volvo Concept Recharge and some of Volvo's plans for their upcoming electric vehicles and automated driving systems. GM's investment in a low-cost, low-carbon lithium producer for their upcoming batteries, and the Concours d'Elegance of America moving to Detroit. And then we wrap up with some listener questions, all coming up next. Did you know you can support Wheelbearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia, and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you and exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to episode 203 of Wheel Bearings. I'm Sam Abu Al Samad from Guidehouse Insights. I'm Nicole Wakelet, and this week we'll go with uh, Sports Car Market. And I'm Roberto Baldwin, and we're going to say TechCrunch this week. All right. And I think uh, Sports Car Market is probably a good choice, Nicole, uh, given some of the uh, listener questions we have at the end of the show. I so, think it actually is. Uh, so you had something interesting in your garage this week, something interesting and something slightly less interesting. Um, Which one do you want me to start with? Okay, so um, I'll start with... I'll leave it up to you. Okay. And people will just have to guess which is which by the time the segment is yeah, over. Exactly, um, yes. <laughs> it's going to be hard, guys. Uh, so I have a 2021 Hyundai Sonata Limited, uh, which is... A sedan and it's a good sedan it looks good um i actually had a hyundai sonata not that long ago so i'm kind of like oh hey we're back for a second roll um i like the sonata i like hyundai's because i think they actually pack a lot of features in for a really good price i mean that's like the hyundai and kia way you get a lot of features in at lower levels on the trim lineup for less money than you do with other oems um this one which is like pretty well tricked out is thirty five thousand on the money like exactly thirty five thousand. i want to know who actually made that happen and that, that including delivery perfect that includes delivery wow. and the carpeted oh, wow. floor mats which were a diff- an additional 155 dollars um yeah exactly thirty five thousand dollars with delivery uh so i'm i'm a fan of this it's got a 1.6 liter turbocharged engine it's got 180 horsepower so it moves when you hit the gas it's smooth it's quiet which is what you want i mean sedans are are just you know they're they're nice cruisers you're focusing on having people be comfortable um and it does that and it's not harsh it's not 
it's not something that you're going to win any races in. I mean, it has enough power and it gets moving. It's not like it's underpowered, but this is at its heart, a, a, like an efficient sedan that does the job of carrying you nicely and comfortably and having the features you want in terms of things like it's got a, this one has a 10.25 inch touchscreen navigation system. Uh, you've got your Apple CarPlay, you've got your, um, what's the other one? Android auto. You've got all of that stuff. You have a really good suite of standard safety, uh, which I always appreciate because there's still some OEMs that, you know, they'll, they'll put one or two things on a base trim and then you really have to start going up if you want to either. We're, get we're looking standard. at UGM. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like it's like, Oh, we have all these safety features. Oh wait, two are included on the base trim. Uh, the we rest have of them... backup camera. You're like, you know that? No, you can't say that anymore. Yeah, you can't say backup camera. Right. It's yeah. like that. Any, anything that is required by law cannot be included <laughs> in the list because everybody right. has to have it. Does have- it. See, and I'm looking at their list and nothing on this list is required by law. So go Hyundai. Uh, so this one, see, look, at here's the list of the advanced safety technology. Blind spot, spot collision avoidance, rear cross traffic, forward collision avoidance with pedestrian detection, park collision avoidance, front and back, surround... Oh, they did, surround view monitor. But I guess that's fancier than just a regular rear view camera, right? Well, but yeah, that you know that gets the cameras on the side and, and on the front. And yeah, yeah. so I guess technically together, that so. counts because it's yeah, more than just that a... Drone that drone view. Counts. Right, yeah. you get the everything view. Uh, front and rear parking sensors, remote smart parking assist and blind view monitor... And safe exit warning. That's all part of this. And you're exactly $35,000 sedan. Bam. Uh, bam. Boom. For exactly thirty-five. So I'm a fan of the Sonata. I was a fan of it the first time I drove it. Hey, I'm still a fan of it the second time I drove it. Um, I don't have so a lot of complaints you had the about it. It's, I don't think I had limited last time. I feel like I had a different No, I mean one. this time I was you had the limited. To... Oh, this time. Yes. This time I have the limited. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, and it looks good. Sedans have this tendency to either be styled to look absolutely dishwater dull and they're boring and you wouldn't even notice them. They have this sort of silver, like, accent sort of that runs along the hood kind of. It's like, it looks good. It's a good looking car. It, it attracts your attention. Uh, I'm I'm a Hyundai fan. I like Hyundais in general because I just feel like they're an unbelievable value. And this one is quiet and smooth and comfy. Plenty of room in the back seat for... My husband uh, sat behind my daughter who had been playing with the seats and they were like way back. He's 6'3". He still fit back there. So, <laughs> so yeah. Cool. So that was my, that was one of the cars I had. So the the engine in that one, uh, I think that's, that's the 1.6 turbo, right? Yeah, it's the 1.6 turbo. It's uh, 180 horsepower, 195 pound feet of torque. So it's a decent amount of get up and go. Like you push the gas and, and you're going to move. You're not going to like... You're not going to have trouble merging with highway traffic. You're not going to have trouble trying to find that extra bit of power if you're passing someone who's a little slow on the highway. Um, and it's got an eight-speed automatic with paddle shifters, if you so choose, right? Yeah, I, you missed Roberto's little Because, you know, everybody driving shifters. a Sonata is paddle know, pretending they're, you know... Well, you know, is, they're, so they're this is really Hamilton. funny... So my daughter, she's 17, by the way, just because you don't think she's like a toddler or something. She's 17. She's like, what are those? Because for some reason, they just caught her attention. They're very large pedal shifters on the, on the you know, that are mounted. And I told her, and she's like, why would you want those on this? And I was like, oh, ouch. Ooh, uh. <laughs> Correct. And she's 17. And she just knows that from the few cars that she's driven and from riding along in cars with me. I'm like, well, maybe... Maybe you want to feel like you're. You want to downshift a little, little bit more. You don't want you. Right. You want to control like in the. Just, you know. You're you're maybe. at the autocross with your Sonata. 
<laughs> right. Like you do. Like one like does do. on every weekend. Yeah. Well, that is the beauty of autocross, though, is you can take anything, Any, literally anything. anything, you know, at least anything that is self-propelled and, and, and run it. So you could <laughs> take a Sonata. Well, you could. You're, you're I mean, there's... There, What's the thing? Just Tones. because you can doesn't mean you should. I mean, you could take the Sonata on an autocross course, but you know, it's not something that I think I'm going out on a limb here, but I don't think the typical Hyundai Sonata owner would do that. But if there's one listening out there who takes their Sonata and does autocross with it, please feel free to message us. <laughs> oh, and send us a video. <laughs> send us a video. That's yes, what I want please. to see. Yeah. Using the paddle shifters. <laughs> I'm a, I am a fan of the Hyundai Sonata. So uh, seeing a Hyundai Sonata autocross would make my day. Somebody must have one they can do that. Yeah. Someone's, <laughs> yeah, well, someone's making an appointment I, right now. Right this minute. The, the, thing, the thing I like about the Sonata you know, is it's got enough style without seeming over-designed like uh, a certain Toyota midsize sedan, mm-hmm. um, which you know can can be a little bit over the top. You know, I, I think there's it's got the, the right balance. You talked about you know, a lot of midsize sedans you know, kind of disappear into the background. This one definitely doesn't do that, but it's got just enough that it doesn't you know, whack you upside the head all the time. It's currently sitting in my driveway with a far flashier vehicle that it doesn't look completely overwhelmed by. And I kind of thought, you know, that's something to hold your own against what's sitting yeah. next to it in the driveway right now. <laughs> so, so, the, so the other one is the underwhelming vehicle then, right? The other is one the, is uh, the completely uh, underwhelming, not exciting, um, not attention-getting vehicle at all. I have a 21 Aston Martin DBX. Uh, which is slightly more than a thirty-five thousand. Um, let's see. It's just add a couple a, of zeros. Um, yeah, a lot of or zeros. Zero. <laughs> so it's one seventy-seven nine one seventy-six nine hundred. But as equipped, sitting in my driveway, two hundred nineteen thousand one hundred eighty-six dollars. So you could buy what six, six Hyundai Sonatas or an Aston Martin DBX. Take your pick. Um, seems reasonable. Yeah. Seems reasonable. I, yeah, you could buy six cars or one car. So, and truly, like, it's a really stylish looking car, but it's funny, like, sometimes when you have a very fancy press car and you have just a normal, what the rest of us humans drive, suddenly what the rest of us humans drive looks really sort of sad and dull sitting in the driveway next to it. <laughs> it actually, truly, the Sonata is like, hey, you look pretty good sitting next to that car that is six times your price. Like, yeah. it, it did well. Um so the Aston Martin DBX, it's so funny to even talk about a car like this. If you want to buy a car that's $219,000, you're just going to kind of do it. You're not going to look to see, you know, you just have to want <laughs> you've already made that your... Aston Martin. Like you've made your decision. You're not like, well, let me see. Is the fuel economy, is it up to snuff? It's like, no, I want that. Buy it. Here's my money. I kind of feel that's how you are if you're buying cars at that price level. I, but Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the thing about... I think the thing that's strange about, you know, the premise of the DBX, you know, is I'm old enough to remember that the 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 idea of SUVs from companies from brands like Porsche and Aston Martin and Lamborghini was just completely anathema. You you wouldn't even consider it. I mean, an Aston Martin SUV, that's insane. And yet there it is. And it was funny, I put up a couple of pictures on social media, I put some pictures on Twitter, and I put some pictures just on my personal Facebook page, because I was sharing, I always share what I have, especially when it's really fun. And there were actually people who were sort of like, gosh, 
How desperate are they that they would do an SUV? Who does that at a luxury performance car? It's like, um, Everyone. actually, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> Pretty much. <It's> not, <laughs> if they, well, yeah. and, and I think, you know, desperation is not an entirely inappropriate word to use uh, for Aston Martin in the last few years. You know, they have had oh, yeah. some financial challenges. And yes. you know had to be refinanced. So yeah, I think that's a that's a reasonable word to use in that context. But I think even if they hadn't had their financial missteps, this car would still be here oh, right yeah. now. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. it's not yeah. like they're like we have to do this because of our finances. It's no, we just have to do this because this is what you need to do in 2021. Like yeah. you have to have an SUV, or are you even making cars anymore? You know, For Lamborghini's best-selling car ever is the Urus. Yeah. Oris, I and, can. Never, I feel like every Oris. time I say the name of that, I say it differently. They, every time, yeah. I had, I, and, when I know. did the video of it, I had to keep going over to the to the PR person who who says Oris, 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 and I might be saying it wrong again. Who knows? I just kept walking over to her and be like, uh, "Wait, Oris or Oris?" She's like, Oris. I'm like, "All right." And I walk back over and I do my little stand up about the car, and then I come. I'm like, "Ah, oh, shit!" And I walk back over. See, I can't ever do a video on that car because I can't. I will never say it the same way twice. It'll be a different way every time the word comes out of my mouth. So, well, that makes it more interesting. Uh, but DBX, I can say, right? It just makes it more exciting. It's yeah. a fancy car thing. You say it however you want to say it. You're going to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars. You call it whatever you want to call yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I mean, it's and it is exactly. It's kind of exactly what you'd expect an Aston Martin SUV to be. It's it's unbelievably stunning and luxurious inside. There's leather everything. There's wood everything. There's chrome everything. That you know, an Alcantara headliner. It's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Drives beautifully. You have six different drive modes in this thing. There's two that are off-road modes. I really want to know who's taking their $220,000 Aston Martin DBX off-road. I'm sure there's one guy. Um, <laughs> but like off-road to his cabin where he has his valet park it. Um, but, and then there's like sport and sport plus mode. And you can feel it change as you go through the modes. But with the favorite thing in the sport plus, it gets so loud, it's obnoxious. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> like, it's like it goes from like a nice little purr to like in your face. It is so loud. Uh, and it's fun to drive. I mean, it's an absolute joy to drive it. Uh, the only thing I don't like, the, there is something I don't like about this. I don't like the infotainment system because it doesn't have the touch screen. It has the spinny little Mercedes Benz type oh, touchpad yeah, yeah. thing, like a little rectangle that sits on it. And then there's like a dial underneath it. Not a fan, but I hate, I hate not having a touch screen. It's, it's just, I, I, well, I hate it. Typically the more expensive you, the more money you spend on a, on a car on a luxury car, especially from a niche automaker, the worse the, uh, infotainment system gets it's yes it's usually how so like everything else is brilliant but the infotainment system made me a little stabby but other than that sure if i had two hundred nineteen thousand one hundred and eighty six dollars i would buy that instead of six hyundai sonatas <laughs> <laughs> but then you could start a hyundai sonata rental company I could. I could just rent them, lease them, make a little money just on put, the side. Just put, put them on Turo and you know use the income from that to pay for the DBX. Exactly. That's the way to go. You got to buy six, six Hyundais, one Aston Martin, rent out your Hyundais to pay for your Aston Martin. That's See, it. You, that's the you money. You figured it out, Sam. Yep. So. And, and maybe you know, on occasion, you know, put the, the Aston on, on Turo as well you know, for – because what could possibly go wrong with you know putting your two hundred thousand dollar British luxury SUV 
you know, um, on some with random it, yeah, you know, with personal, you know, peer to peer car rental site. Yeah, 542 horsepower in Sport Plus mode that turns all the nannies off. Nothing could ever go wrong with that. Just handing that to a random person. Nothing. Totally <laughs> fine. Nope. Totally fine. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. going to come out super, super, super <laughs> duper awesome. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and and just as a reminder for those, you know, who still think that the uh, the idea of an Aston Martin SUV is, you know, heresy, don't forget next year the Ferrari Puro saying it's coming. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah. All yeah. all those 911 variants that you love, you know, how Porsche can build a 911 variant for every single customer that's out there. Um, <laughs> those are all paid for by uh, the Cayenne and the Macan. So Yeah. 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 SUVs. Th- yeah, this SUVs this is this is why those anywhere. This this is why you know the 911, the the Gallardo or the Huracan, um, you know the, the DB11. That's why those cars can exist because there are people who will go and buy these SUVs, you know, and that's that's what pays the bills. So if you could do right. a DB11 or a DBX, which would you do? Eleven. Oh no contest! I would do the DB11. Okay. So would I. I just had to ask since you mentioned DB11. I'm like, which impractical? I guess it's a little bit practical, the DBX, but. Okay. No, I mean, you know, my kids are grown. They they can take care of themselves. I don't need to haul them around. Yeah, yeah they got it. <laughs> and if I can, kids, if I can afford an Aston Martin, I can, you know, I can have my stuff FedExed or just buy new stuff when I get to wherever it is I'm going. I don't yeah. You can have somebody else drive your ca- car behind you with the stuff that you need yes. and meet you wherever exactly. you want to be. Have Otherwise, the, you drive your DB11. Have the valet. Have the valet drive the yes. Range Rover with all the stuff, you know, and, <laughs> you know, when I get you, you there, get a, you, you know, then I'm good. You get yourself a, uh, uh, a not, what's the, not the junker car. What, um, you get yourself a cheap car to drive around for your dogs. The beater. You get a beater. You get a 2004 uh, Jaguar X-Type that, according to, uh, what was it, Carvana, <laughs> I, I wanted to look up how much the Jaguar was worth for to Carvana, $270. <laughs> get one of those and you uh, cram all your stuff in it the 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 other day i was looking up the the value of of my car my miata um on the Haggerty um car valuation tool and then i looked on uh kbb and you know on Haggerty it was like about eight grand or something like that on kbb a 1990 miata was like 500 bucks (laughs) <laughs> it's like just a slight <laughs> difference there. Yeah, does take into account the 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 sort of the enthusiast uh, uh, audience. Taking into account yeah. the crazy of how much used cars right now, one of my husband's colleagues just bought a new car. I honestly forgot what he said he bought, but he traded in a two thousand and it's like a two thousand eight two thousand nine Wrangler that had about eighty thousand miles on it. He got twenty four thousand dollars from the dealer for that car. Wow, twenty four thousand dollars. Uh, I, I, this morning when I was walking the dog, I ran into one of the neighbors, and she was saying her, her daughter, she's got a, a 2006 Accord, Honda Accord, and she just had to put 1200 bucks into fixing the uh, fixing something on it. I can't remember what. And she's been getting an itch to buy a new car, and I said, please, tell your daughter, do not buy a new car right now. Wait until at least the end of the year, early next year. Just keep the Accord running for now because there's there's nothing out there to buy. I mean, you're going to pay through the nose for anything good yeah. if you can even find it, which is unfortunate. But uh, that's the way it is right now. All right, Robbie, what about you? What have you been driving? 
Oh, what have I been driving? Hold on, let me look. <laughs> I've been driving the Mercedes-Benz uh, E450 all-terrain wagon. Um, it is a very, very fancy wagon is what it is. It is uh, <laughs> and it's got formatic. So it's the Mercedes-Benz Outback? It is the Mercedes-Benz Outback, yeah. If you, if you like, oh, you know, I kind of want an Outback, but I also want to go really, really fast. Or, no, not just fast. <laughs> I want to be pampered like I've never been pampered before. Then you can get yourself the E450 uh, 4Matic all-terrain wagon. I love wagons. I love station wagons. Um, I love sport wagons. This is not a Well, you wouldn't be allowed wagon. to write about cars if you didn't. Yeah, I didn't. And, and I'm the, Hold on. I got crazy. Hey. Does your dog not like wagons? I don't is know. He objecting or is he they don't, they don't, they don't get to go in the wagon, so they don't know. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, all I, dogs I was, love wagons. I was unaware of the 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 auto journalist uh, wagon um, excitement uh, when I started doing this, and when they somebody asked me, "Oh, what kind of cars you like?" I'm like, "Oh, I like this." They're like, "Typical." I'm like, "What? What? What?" <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 an E-class sedan that just happens to be a wagon. That's that's really what it comes down to. It yeah. you know it has the the inline V6, or inline V6. That doesn't make any sense. It has an inline <laughs> six engine. <laughs> uh. Was that the thing about being a poser? I mean, <laughs> I know. Good job, poser. It has the uh, inline six turbo <laughs> engine. It has EQ EQ boost like pretty much every other uh, Mercedes Benz out there now. Um, 362 horsepower. 369 pound-feet of torque, uh, nine-speed automatic. It is smooth, and I don't even want to say butter. What's it, what's smoother than butter? Like whipped cream, like, melted brown it's, it's butter. Melted brown butter. It is a. It is so smooth. It has the little bolster, uh, the little side bolsters that that, uh, that like squish you. That squish the, you as you go as you go around corners. Oh, the automatic ones. Yeah, that you turn, you Yeah, so it keeps you from sliding out of your seat, even though you're you're seat belted in. Um, I'm a fan of those uh, because they're just so like I'm driving a wagon. I, I, I'm driving a station wagon, <laughs> but thanks Mercedes, thanks a lot. Uh, it, it's got a nice wood interior. The the dashboard has this uh, uh, this nice wooden interior, which I'm sure um, it, it's probably uh, a lot of money. Um, <laughs> it's hold on, let me see what it is. It's uh, a lot of money. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna look and see how much this this interior. Uh, I don't see it, um, but it, it is so nice. You open up the rear and the little the cover like goes back automatically. Everything that you think a Mercedes Benz uh, would have as a wagon, you're going to get in this car. Um, it's all terrain, apparently, which means you could probably take it off road. Uh, the the version I have, it starts at uh, sixty seven thousand six hundred. Um, the one I have is twenty thousand dollars more. It's uh, eighty-seven thousand seven hundred. So uh, let's just say ninety, you know, ninety thousand dollars for your for your for your, for your very very fancy station wagon, uh, and it's a and I keep I I feel bad because I keep saying it's a Mercedes, but yeah, it's a Mercedes. Everything about it it's so comfortable. <laughs> it's got the little it's got the little pillow headrest which I love. Like every time I drive a bunch of cars and then I get into uh you know an, an E class or or an S class I'm like oh now I remember why people spend so much money on these cars. 
You know what I always love that okay, the speakers, who makes the the audio, the radio in in it, they have the speaker grills are always metal and they're perforated and have like the little they're the prettiest speakers. The spiral like, pattern. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah spiral. They just, yeah. This, like, beautiful spiral pattern. It's like, like a galaxy. Ooh. Right. I'm like, I know this is literally just the cover on the speaker, but ooh, it makes the car look so fancy. And 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 Mercedes um they popularize the uh, interior lighting accents. Um, ambient lighting. Ambient lightning. Lighting. Um, I I always said it's a pepper mill. Pepper mill is a uh, it's a, a like a red and blue. The pepper mill is a uh, a I would say maybe a slightly high end greasy spoon diner in Las Vegas. That every time I have to go to CES, I like to go to the pepper mill to eat too much food that has probably been deep fried for far too long. Um, and yeah, I love driving around in pepper mill uh, mode. It, <laughs> Yeah. Now I have to go to this place next time. It is great. Go to the Pepper Mill. It is. It is. It is like a really fancy Denny's. Is what it is. They have like they have trees fancy and stuff. Denny's. Yeah, it is like fancy Denny's. Uh, you got to. Is that in, is it in one of the hotels? No, no. That, it's uh... it's it's down at the end of the strip, uh, past um, the the famous Mexican the taqueria that everyone goes to. Oh my gosh! I just pulled up the website and the colors are. Yeah, totally there you are. Like yeah, is, that's the pepper mill. It legit <laughs> does look like ambient lighting. Grab whatever <laughs> device you have in front of you if you're not driving and look up Pepper Mill Restaurant. Pepper Mill Las Vegas. Las Vegas. And as soon as it comes up, okay, I get it. Yeah, that totally. They have makes yeah. Sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, been driving it around. Uh, Mercedes Benz's um, ADAS system is probably you know without having hands free or all the other like sort of level two point five etc is one of the smoothest out there like of, of all the cars that that i drive and i try um you know adaptive cruise control and and link keep assist um other than this one thing i'll talk about in a second uh cut-ins it doesn't like do crazy things when, when there are cut-ins when when people pull out in front of you it's it's very smooth sort of coming up to getting up to speed uh but there is one thing and that is mercedes-benz's idea of lane keep lane keep assist where if you get too close to the edge like it just shoots you back over and it is it is jarring um the first time you, you, the first i don't know 200 times you use it <laughs> so it doesn't like, it doesn't gently you know shove you back into the middle of the no, lane no, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like oh what are you doing buddy <laughs> you need a figure especially if you're at the edge Pay of attention. the lane so if you're pull, yeah if you're pulling off the freeway and like, let's say there's some traffic, and you're sort of like pulling off just slightly ahead of where you should put off, where you're where you're kind of going into the white lane along the uh, edge of the road. It will uh, it will adjust you. It will be like no, no. Uh, but yeah, no. It's it is it is. I, I I love this this car that I cannot afford, and I probably wouldn't <laughs> buy just because I can't afford it. And I, you know, there are plenty of well, not plenty. There are other wagons. If you on. could afford it, would you buy this one? Like, say this is your price range. I probably would get the V60. Okay. I probably fair. get the V60. Just I get because okay. I'm 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 uh, even if I were rich, I I I think I would still be uh, a a cheap, which I am. I are thrifty or frugal. I don't know what the word is. Um, I've never owned a new frugal. car. The frugal only, stingy. sounds nice. Yeah. Stingy. I, stingy. <laughs> yeah. The only new vehicle I've ever purchased was my Vespa. Um, we did lease a vehicle that was new, but we've never I've never bought a new car it's always been used because i'm just like oh i can save a couple grand because it's cheaper to buy this and you know it's less you know less impact on the environment because the car's already out in the world and might as well get the most out of it and and, and i know how to work on cars so if something goofy goes wrong i'm totally fine 
Well, and I have never bought a used car in my life because I always want a new one. I just love the thrill of being the one who is the only one who ever in the history of ever drove it, except the guy who drove it the, what, seven miles yeah. to get it from the assembly line <laughs> into the parking lot of the dealership. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have only ever got new cars. I've, I've only ever purchased used cars. so I'm. I but I do keep them forever in a day. I mean, it's not like I buy a new car every three years. Yeah. I think my cars are typically, I do have them for like 10 or 11 years. So I get my money's worth out of them. The car we've had the least yeah, amount we, of time was our, our uh, mini uh, countryman. And I think uh, listeners will probably understand why. Because uh, that's yeah, period. <laughs> you know why? That's all you needed to say. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's 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 it's, an, it's another one of those cars that's great to drive and terrible to own. Exactly. It was. Um, I think the seals were getting ready to go. Uh, the clutch was getting ready to go. Um, it was uh, when we uh, we traded it in for our BRZ, which is also used. Um, <laughs> we uh, as after we signed the paperwork and the gentleman got up and walked away. I leaned over to my wife. I'm like, that, that mini's going to explode. She's like, what? <laughs> I didn't tell her the full extent of the issues that were that were creeping up on the mini that, you know, in like 10,000 miles, something bad was so going to happen. So now your poor wife is thinking like, did we just kill that man by accident? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I'm all, that mini is, she's like, oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> So yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're more we're more like you, uh, Nicole. I mean, we 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 have bought used cars. Like you know, I bought my Miata used, and I you know bought used car for used cars for the kids. Uh, but uh, for for my wife, I've always bought her new cars, and I've I've owned some new cars, and but we keep them you know at least you know eight to ten years. Um, yeah, you know, so I like having having no car payment. You know, pay it off and and then just keep yes. driving it for for many many years. Uh, Those are the until, gravy uh, years until. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Until you know, un- until you know, the, it's discovered that the manufacturer cheated on the emission controls and and offers to buy it back <laughs> for you for several thousand dollars more than its market value. Um, you're like, yeah, you're like sure, well. take All it. right. Yeah. I don't like all of every car I think I've ever traded in. I've I've known what I wanted, but then by the time I get to the point where I'm to the dealership, like I'm waiting for it to come in, and I always time it just right. So it's like, okay, the old car's working. In the three weeks it takes to get the one I want, it's like the muffler falls off, something oh, starts misfiring, yeah. like the transmission starts to go, and I roll into the dealership, kind of like, come on, baby, hold together, hold together, hold together. We're so close. We're almost there. That, <laughs> we're almost there. That was that was the mini when we were like, okay, we got to get this. I'm like I'm filling it full of oil. I uh, what I think I, I I swapped out the the plugs. It was fouling plugs. Like there was no tomorrow. <laughs> I swapped yeah, out the plugs. Things are going wrong. And they 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 were just like, oh okay, whatever. Yeah, it's a mini. Here's you know. And then we we were repeat customers. It was shift the the people who just bring you a car and let you drive it around. If you like it, you get to keep it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, you bought this from us. I'm like, yeah, okay, we'll give you an extra couple. You know, I think they gave us an extra eight hundred dollars or nine hundred dollars or whatever for for being return customers for it. And I was just like, oh. All right, cool. Get it away from us. <laughs> yeah, when <clears throat> when um, when Volkswagen announced the uh, diesel buyback program, um, my wife decided she wanted to get the Honda Civic hatchback, uh, which was just coming out at that point. But the uh, uh, the version with the ADAS features was several months uh, late. Was launching several months later after the, the the hatchback was launching, and so we hung on to the the Jetta for another six months or so and in that time period right right around the the time they announced the the buyback actually we we had a a wagon a a 2010 tdi wagon 
and it had the uh, the panoramic moonroof, and so it's got this sunshade that that can retract back, you know, and open it up so you have the the glass, or you can close it, you know, to get a little shade. And one day, my wife was uh, in the garage getting ready to go somewhere, and she hit the button to put the sunshade back, and it went back, got back about halfway, and then one side stopped, and the other side kept going. And, oh. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, she came back inside, told me what happened. I went out and looked at it, started Googling, you know, how to fix that. And it turns out that um, if you take it to a dealer to repair that, apparently it was a fairly common problem on those cars. And if you take it in to repair it, it's about $1,500. It's about 400 bucks for parts and about 1000 bucks for... Uh, over a thousand bucks for the the uh, labor because they basically have to rip the entire headliner out and all kinds uh. of other stuff to do it. And uh, and I said, you know what? Forget that. I went out, got a box cutter, just ripped the thing out, cut out the, re- the remnants of it. Went to AutoZone and got some window tint film and put it on the inside of the <laughs> glass to to give her some extra shade. Done we, and done. left it like that until we turned it in. So when we were for the Jeep Grand Cherokee L launch a few weeks back, they actually had us tour the uh, the facility, the factory where they build them. And at one point, you can actually see the mechanism that is there just to make these, you know, the sunroof that slider slide open. And because they didn't have any of the headliner, it's all like you know the innards of a car. And I literally looked at that and I was like, oh my gosh, that is a lot of mechanicals up under that headliner just to make that work. So when you were saying how much it costs, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see that because it's all buried in there. It's like behind, you'd have to take Mm -hmm. all of that off to get to it. So I can see how it would be crazy expensive and a box cutter and some shade film there. Some film would do the trick instead. (laughs) This is why Tesla, for example, you can't get a, an actual opening sunroof on their cars. They just put a sheet of glass on there and glue it on, and hopefully it'll stay. But it never, you know, it's never supposed to move. Yeah. But every once in a while they they do. But we don't need to get into that. It's a feature <laughs> right. or a bug. It's a feature or a bug. What did you drive this well, week? Well, it depends. Too? I mean, if it. Uh, let's see. I had the um, the Mazda CX nine uh, signature, uh, which uh, is. A, I haven't driven this particular configuration before. It's the 2021 CX-9 Signature all-wheel drive. It has the 2.5-liter turbo, which is a lovely engine that I that really, really enjoy. Um, and, you know, this is Mazda's biggest vehicle. It's their, their big three-row crossover. Saying that, you know, it's not quite as big as, say, for example, a Hyundai Palisade or a Kia Telluride. So it's, it's one of those ones that's kind of an in-betweener, um, that's, you know, maybe close, I think closer in size to the, the Kia Sorento than the Telluride, you know, so it's got that third row for emergency use for, you know, smaller people. <laughs> um, but it's definitely not somewhere where you would want to relegate your, you know, your, your, your closer adult friends, you, you know, it's, it's definitely a little tight in that third row. Um, and this version, the signature comes with, um, second row captain's chairs and a really nice, second row center console uh so it's you know definitely it's a six-seater um but you know as as with all mazdas you know it's got a lovely interior um you know the signatures the top of the line model you know so you've got leather trim on the dash and um you know everything is really well executed it it looks like a significantly more expensive vehicle than it is you know it looks like some you know it's got the kind of interior that you would expect from a volvo or an audi you know or or even you know a a mercedes-benz 
Um, and, you know, that that's what, you know, that's the direction Mazda has been going in recent years, you know, trying to get that more premium feel in their vehicles. Um, you know, the 227 horsepower is kind of, it's a great engine, 310 pounds feet of torque, but it, you know, in this bigger vehicle, it's kind of, that's kind of the, the limit of what it's capable of, you know, so it's, it's, it's got, you know, more than adequate performance, but it's definitely not what you would call a sportier crossover. You know, it's not quite up there with what you would get. You know, again, I'll use the Sorento as an example. You know, their their new 2.5 liter turbo that they have is, is actually feels quite a bit stronger than the Mazda engine. You know, it's about 270 horsepower, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Mazda does have uh, plenty of torque. Uh, it's a six-speed automatic um, all-wheel drive, 20-inch wheels. You know, it's a very handsome-looking vehicle, but it's also now pretty much the oldest model in the Mazda, remaining in the Mazda lineup now that the, the 6 is gone. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the CX-9 get replaced in, you know, sometime in the next 12 months with a new version. Um, but, uh, you know, for if you're looking for something now, that you know you don't need quite as much interior volume as what you would get in the you know the the larger three rows like like I said the, like the Telluride or the the Palisade. Um, you want something that's got a little bit sportier feel to the driving dynamics. Uh, you know this is definitely a, a good one to take a look at. Um, and the MSRP on this one was forty six thousand six hundred and five, and with delivery. Um, and the extra 500 bucks for the machine gray metallic paint, uh, it came to $48,200, um, which, you know, is, is right in the ballpark of what you would pay for the high end versions of, uh, you know, those Korean crossovers. Um, the 23 miles per gallon, uh, EPA rating combined, uh, you know, again, is, is in the same ballpark, uh, despite only having two less gears in the transmission. Um, you know, cause it is a little, you know, slightly smaller, slightly lighter than those vehicles. Uh, so it does. Okay. Um, I think I got about 21, uh, with it went during my driving with it for a week. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, worth taking a look at if, uh, you know, if you're something in something, you know, bigger than, you know, like on the upper end of the midsize segment, let's put it that way as a, as a descriptor. So. Cool. That's the yeah, 2021 the, on their, Mazda CX-9 signature. On their website for the for pictures of the interior on the gallery, the person getting into the third row is a child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like they have that, a photo that, that makes of sense. a child getting into the third row because it's a, it's a, it's just sort of, I, I feel like these, a lot of these third rows are just there because people want to oh, I'll have a third row just in case. Um, and I think yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, or, if or they, I have if a very, or I have a tiny child. Them. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, if you've got a child that small, they should probably be in a in a child seat anyway or a booster seat, which means that, you know, you don't want to have to deal with that in the third row, you know, putting them yeah, back there is... in the third row into a booster seat. That's, you know, so it's you're really better off. And in fact, I ended up, you know, just folding down the uh, the third row because I had to go get some stuff, not mulch, but I had to go pick up some stuff with it. And, uh <laughs> And, you know, so I just folded down the third row and left it there because, uh, you know, I, this is not the kind of vehicle I would want to put mulch into. Um, so, you know, it's, but it, I, I enjoy driving it. You know, it's, it's, it's like, like any Mazda. It is, uh, it is an enjoyable vehicle to drive. It inspires you to want to go places. 
Yeah. Yeah, I like the CX-9. And I do think that that third row, like you said, is very much in this one is is sort of a token third row. I mean, no one really wants to ever in any vehicle sit into the third row, but this one is definitely on the tighter side. Um, I feel like it's the, the kid who's uh, not in the car seat anymore, but still, you know, that junior high kid that can crawl back there, doesn't need the car seat, but can still get back there and not feel like they're squished. Uh, but it's not yeah. something that you would want to ride in for very long. And you could, I have no idea how you would get a kid back there, like a little kid in a car seat. I feel like you would have to be a contortionist or under five feet tall to be able to get halfway into that, buckle them in and scoot yourself back out again. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it, you know, but you know, if you're, you know, if it's, if it's you and your partner and another couple, you know, it is a, you know, and you fold down that third row and you, you know, maybe going for a weekend getaway, you can put all your stuff in the back. Um, you've got lots of room for, for whatever you need for the weekend or, you know, for a road trip. And, you know, whoever's in that second row is going to be very, very comfortable, uh, you know, in those, in those captain's chairs, um, you know, and they've got that center console in there. So I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's definitely a, a really good combination for that sort of use case. Yeah, it is. And they do really, like you were saying, they have a beautiful interior. They have a striking interior. It is right up there with cars that are significantly more expensive in terms of the comfort and the quiet of the cabin. They're always very quiet. Mm -hmm. You feel very insulated from the road, from the traffic, from like road, the wind noise. If it's like rainy and windy, you don't hear it like you will in some other vehicles. So it definitely captures that luxury car vibe as a passenger. It, it nails it. Yep. Uh, one one thing to note, uh, if you are um, among the the part of the population that is averse to uh, center control knobs for your infotainment system as opposed to a touchscreen, then yeah. this is definitely not the vehicle for you because uh, Honda does or Mazda does not believe in touchscreens. They think it's a bad idea, and, and I'm inclined to agree with them. But uh, uh, so you will have to learn to deal with that uh, center control knob. But it does work well. So. There's I that. hate it. I don't like it. I want a touch screen. I don't care. I don't care that you don't like them, Sam. I want a touch screen. Every time I use a control knob or that I feel like I'm like I'm spinning like I've got it. I, mm, I want a touch screen. Period. The end. That's what I want. <laughs> All right. Whatever. <laughs> you, can, you can have your touch screens. You can you can have your touch screens. We will agree to disagree on that one. Okay. I think a happy, All right. A happy medium is a well, uh, well integrated uh, voice control system. But oh, look at you being yes. the peacemaker, Roberto. Yes. I think okay. a, a, a good and, a good and actually because you don't have to like know, take that, your hand off the is, wheel. That, you just say things. Give me the thing I want that, and give it. But to only if it hears and, and, what you're saying. If you say give me the thing and it's like no, I'm going to give you this other thing, then it's no good at all. That's why it has to be like a good one. It can't be a, you a know, good one. A yes. Uh, uh, yeah. One that can, they'll have to test them on their call though, because apparently none of them understand. Nothing what, hears me, right? Like, no one, nothing, none of them understand, which is why I'm a touchscreen fan. I just want to reach out, touch the screen, show it where I want to go. I don't want to have to tell it the same thing ten times or spin a goofy dial for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Speaking of touchscreens, um, Volvo this week had a uh, had a tech moment event uh, where they talked a lot about their the, the technology that's going to be coming to their their upcoming vehicles, and um, most of uh, pretty much everything they talked about um, is actually going to be launching next year on the replacement for the XC90, which apparently will probably not be called the XC90. Uh, evidently, Volvo has decided. That uh, alphanumerics, uh, you know, as as they move to all electric vehicles, they can they can ditch those and and actually adopt real names, which will be interesting because Volvo's never actually done that in its his, in its history. It's always had some sort of alphanumeric designator for everything it's ever built, uh, going back to its origins in the 1950s. So <clears throat> I will be curious to see what Volvo comes up with for for a name for this one, uh, but. Uh, you know, it's going to be an EV. It's going to have um, you know standard um, standard equipment uh, all, equipped with all of the sensors it needs to eventually do uh, some form of level four automated driving. Um, although that will not be a feature that will be available from day one on the car, but it will be available later on with uh, over the air updates, as they say. Um, so someday, maybe possibly within the, within the life cycle of that car, maybe it'll actually get that capability. Uh, but it will at least use, uh, things like the LIDAR sensor, uh, to enhance the, um, uh, pedestrian detection and, and, uh, other, other capabilities for the, the driver assist features that it will have at launch. Um, and, and they dropped a, a concept called the, uh, the Volvo concept recharge. Um, what do you guys think about this thing? I think it looks kind of cool, actually, styling-wise. I like how they change the front. They have that, what they call that Thor's hammer headlight design. And I always mm-hmm. think it's so cool. Like, whenever I see one behind me at night, I can tell it's a Volvo behind me because of little Thor's hammers. They kept that. That's kind of neat. Yeah. So, like, they changed it up. They gave it more like a, like a closed, like, there's no grill grill. You know, it's flat. But um, I like that they did that. Also, I need to point out that there's a large 15-inch standing touchscreen. I just uh, yes, I'm, okay. I'm aware, and that and that's uh, that's using um, uh, that's using the Android automotive system that was yes. that's also on the Polestar uh, too right now. Mm-hmm. I, I am a fan. So, uh, I I like it. I liked it that when when they announced that they were going to give it a name, um, they were like it, it'll be a name like a child, like like a child like you name a child <laughs> was sort of like the 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 theme they were going for. So this is like their child apparently. And all the Reach. all the gas vehicles ahead of it were its parents, and now you've you, it's the next generation. Remember when Pepsi had the new the, the the choice of a new generation? I think that's that's I think that's kind of what they're going for. Is this this is the new generation of, of Volvo, um, and it's electrified and it has names like Kyle or or Susan. I, I don't think those are very good car names, but maybe Sven. Sven. Or, well, and they're uh, also not very Swedish. They're also very no. yeah, Magnus. Yeah. 
Magnus. The Volvo Magnus. Magnus. There you go. The Volvo the Magnus. The Volvo Magnus. I can, that can get behind that. That's pretty cool. The Volvo Magnus. Or the Henrik. Volvo Magnus. The Henrik. I know. No, because there's <laughs> Henrik Fisker. You can't do that. There's That's already true, a guy but, at a car there, company but, with but that Volvo's, name. Well, yeah, but he, he used his last name, not his first name. So, yeah. I know, you know, but I, well, Henrik, that's true. But Henrik I think Green like is the Henrik, CTO at Mazda. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I don't think or of Volvo. him. I think of Henrik Fisker. I don't know why, but you say Henrik and I think of Fisker. Oh, uh, yeah. He was, <laughs> or, he was or Hawken. Hawken, Hawken, you know, Hawken Samuelson is the CEO of, of Volvo. Yeah. Let's call it the Volvo Hawken. The Volvo Hawken. Um, <laughs> that seems so anti-Swedish, yeah. though, to, to, like, to put a spotlight on yourself as a Swedish individual. Uh, it's so not yeah. Swedish true, at all. Yeah. That's wrong. That they were like, no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> I'm sure someone floated the idea, like an American PR person. What about the hockey? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't do that. <laughs> they just they just turned off his Zoom channel. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> that connection. Quick. That will not be. We will not be discussing that any further. I think you know what what's interesting about this this concept, at least. I'll, I'll be curious to see how close this is to the production model. Uh, you know, Compared to the current XC90, it's got a much lower roof profile. You know, it was a shorter greenhouse, and uh, you know, it, it you know the current XC90 is much more upright design, and this looks more like a cross between uh, like the V90 and you know somewhere between a V90 and an XC90. You know, maybe closer to like the V90 cross country model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's more traditional wagon like, but but taller. Um, so uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see where they go with this. Looking at the concept and the greenhouse, um, I think the issue you have with the Polestar 2 will, will will rear its head again in this this vehicle because if you look yeah. at the, the interior shots, the the headrest, the the top, the bottom of the headrest is uh, almost parallel with the window sill, yeah, the top of the very, door. Very high belt so line. your arm, so your belt line is going to be really high. So your arm is going to be up there again. Which I know you're not a fan of. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so that's that. That might be uh, an issue going forward with you and Volvo vehicles. Is that? But yeah. I, I like the idea. Is that they're they are? Um, it and it was funny during the the tech event. Well, not funny, but it was interesting um, that they were talking about. You know, people kept asking about. Well, is this going to be level three? Is it going to be level four? And Volvo kept like sort of waving that off. And like we have two. Thing. We have supervised and unsupervised, and that's how we, we're, they're looking at. Because, you know, what is the difference between level three and four, and like, what if this is? And then you start, you get into this weird gray area between level three and four as your, as a, as an OEM. And so I think they're they're just like, you know what, we're not going to deal with that sort of, that the ambiguity. Like it's either supervised, that means you're driving, or it's unsupervised, the car is driving. And of course, Volvo, they they were also. They reiterated the fact that they are uh, responsible if while the car is unsupervised, which means it's driving itself, and it gets in an accident, they're they're at fault, which is, you know, pretty good. You know, I really like the idea of them saying supervised and unsupervised because truly to the average person, you say level one, level two, level – that doesn't mean anything to anybody. And someone's going to have to like literally Google what the heck that means, try to get some definitive – understanding of that and then sit down in the car but if you say supervised most people are going to get okay i got to pay attention if you say unsupervised it makes sense that okay no i could read a book like that's a much that's really a much better way to say it something that the average person can understand as opposed to someone who has to be somehow 
in the industry to understand what all these various levels are. Because you're always, as a writer, always having to explain what level three is or level four exactly. is or level two point. Like, it's a level three, and then you have to, like, spend, like, five graphs <laughs> breaking down the difference between. Or you show them that right. SAE, like, the little, the new graphic that they put out a few years ago. Right. You have to come up with some way to couch, like, oh, it's a level three, which means this, which is better than a level two, which isn't as good as a level four. And you just spent five paragraphs yeah. to explain one thing because it's that complicated and convoluted as opposed to unsupervised supervised like that would that would simplify that whole thing and probably be way better for people to understand yeah yeah no, I, I agree totally you know and this is this has been a challenge for for a long time ever since you know the the level uh taxonomy came out <clears throat> uh i mean that was developed by engineers for engineers you know it was never intended to be a marketing label that was applied yeah and, and you're right robbie they, you know, they were very scrupulous during the presentation and the Q&A about not using those terms. And I like that. And, and for what it's worth, uh, you know, the, the day after the, the event, I had a chance to talk with uh, Eric Kohling, who is the head of product for Zensact, which is the division of Volvo that is doing all the software for this stuff. And they're working with closely with Luminar, uh, the LiDAR manufacturer. And he, he clarified that, yeah, at, at launch... Uh, it will only have supervised driver assist. The unsupervised capabilities will come at some later date when, if and when they feel that it is safe enough. You know? So it is very much very consistent with you know, Volvo's long-term philosophy of focusing on safety. You know, they're not going to release an unsupervised system until they are really confident that it will actually be safer than the human driver. And Right now, it doesn't look like they don't think that's going to be the case in 2022 when this vehicle launches. Yeah, you're not going to get a beta, um, and you're, <laughs> you know, Henry no. Henry Green is going to no. be on, on on Twitter like saying, "Hey, the beta will be out in two weeks." Yeah, uh, you know, you know, that's not going to be a thing. Maybe gonna, you're going to promise. Be getting... <laughs> definitely, def maybe definitely, and promise in two weeks. Maybe it's probably <laughs> and for reals this time, guys. Yeah. We're going to have we're going to have for reals for real reals. Um, and, and you know, and, it, and, it, you know, this this stuff turns out to be a lot harder than we thought. Yeah, who would have known? Yeah. Who could have guessed? Who'd 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 have thunk it <laughs> that being as smart as a human behind the wheel was going to be tough? Uh, a tricky thing to yeah. figure out. And, you know, and, and my, I, I, you know, the lidar cameras, radar redundancy. When you comes to these things, you, you need redundant systems, and these, you know, having all three of them on a vehicle is to me is 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 in, in, incredibly important because. You're talking about people's lives, and not just the lives of the people in the car. You're talking about the people, the, li the lives of the people outside of the car. Because if your car can't tell the difference between, say, you know, a horse and a dog, or you know, because it's too far away, because it's just using photos, or it's just using cameras, or it's it has difficulty in bright sunlight, but you know, you you feel, you know, you've been complacent, you you've, you've been lulled into complacency because it's worked for like the last six months without any problems, and then one day you're driving straight into the sun, and now it's not working, and you don't know what to do. That is, yeah, because you know, cameras have, well, the issues that cameras have. All all these sensors have some sort of issue there you know there's strengths and there are weaknesses in every every single one of these sensors and you you want the redundancy so that the weakness of one sensor is taken over by the strength of another as opposed to just oh, let's just do it with one thing 
Yeah, and you know, in addition to the sensor redundancy, you also need computing redundancy. You know, one of the the things that with the their new platform that's going to be used for this vehicle, um, Volvo is moving towards centralized computing. You know, cars, you know, high-end cars today can have upwards of a hundred electronic control units scattered around the car, and they're they're starting to consolidate that. And Volvo is taking control of a lot more of the software away from their suppliers. You know, as they as they integrate that, they're going to have <clears throat> two central what they call their, their core computers uh, in this thing that are each powered by the NVIDIA Orin um, uh, system on a chip, uh, which is a, a really high-powered compute, uh, uh, compute device. It does uh, 250 trillion operations per second, uh, which for comparison, um, a couple of years ago, I talked to Brian Seleski, the uh, CEO of Argo AI, and he was, he was the head of the software effort on the, the Carnegie Mellon team that won the DARPA challenge in 2007. And I asked him how much compute power they had in that thing, in that Chevy Tahoe. And he said that thing was running 10 Intel Core 2 Duo chips uh, on, on blades. And so that had roughly about 1.8 billion operations per second. So this thing, the, the, the Orin, a single chip, has about 500,000 times the performance of what was in that um, wow. in, in, the, uh, in, in that car that won the DARPA challenge in 2007. And, so how many and with that, they still can't do the you know full self-driving at the beginning. It's it is yeah. It's still you still can't do it. it yeah, it's 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 tough, but yeah. it it feels like I you know whenever I hear an automaker is sort of doing the do the do the due diligence. Oh, sorry, that's a hard doing the due diligence <laughs> um, to in order to make this a reality. I I, I feel a lot better about you know. Um, uh, uh, I guess autonomous driving, level four, whatever you want to call it, unsupervised driving in the future, because the worst part, and you know, most of this is still going to be on the highway, but the worst part of driving is when you're not driving, which is commuting. Commuting's not driving, commuting's just standing in a very long line. That's that's what commuting is in order to get to work. What are you doing? I'm, stand, I'm sitting in a long line listening to podcasts on my way to work. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds no. like fun. No, it's that's not. That's an accurate description of what a commute is. <laughs> it, it is not fun. Um, I'm tired of listening to this person go on and on about whatever that podcast is about. <laughs> it's breaking our Well, then brains. you should be listening to the Wheel Bearings podcast. You should be listening exactly. to the Wheel If you're going to be stuck in a long line yeah. on your way to work, you should be listening to a podcast about cars. So we can tell exactly. you, like, hey, hey, it's going to get better. We swear. I mean, not next week or maybe next year, but soon. Well, not eventually. soon. But eventually. But eventually. We promise. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> things are going to be. All right. Um, from... From cars of the future to cars of the past. Uh, this week, um, the uh, the organizers of the Concours de Elegance of America, uh, which is here in Detroit, it's one of the four big Concours classic car shows uh, in the U.S., along with Pebble Beach, Amelia Island, and uh, the Greenwich Concours in Connecticut. Um, they had a press conference. Uh, the, the event was recently acquired by Haggerty, the uh, car insurance company, or actually, they don't do, just do car insurance. They do insurance for all kinds of stuff, but they focus on uh, classic cars, boats, uh, various other things. Anyway, they acquired the, the show, and uh, Mikhail Haggerty, who is the CEO of uh, Haggerty, uh, 
announced that uh, next year, uh, right now the, the show for the last uh, about eight or nine years has been in Plymouth, Michigan, which is a town about uh, 15, 20 miles west of Detroit. Uh, before that, uh, for the previous, the 30 years before that, it was up in uh, Oakland County, north of Detroit at uh, Meadowbrook Hall. It's going to be moving into Detroit proper next year for the first time. And it's going to be um, at the uh, Detroit Institute of the Arts. So in the area around the DIA, this, this fabulous art museum, um, they're going to be having all these amazing cars on display there. And one of the things I've always liked about, um, about this show, the, 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 this concourse, is that you know, they have always been focused on uh, you know, trying to get really interesting cars you know, that, that, that will get people excited about, about cars. It's not, you know, it, they're not precious about you know, cars, you know, just having you know, the most highly um, restored, you know, better, far better than they were new you know, classic cars, but they want really interesting cars. You know, so some, you know, in the past, they've, you know, they were one, I think they were the first concours to ever have a class for drag racers, drag cars. And you know oh, that's cool. that's always a, a perpetual favorite. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, they had a class for rally cars, um, and they had uh, John Campion uh, was there. The, unfortunately, the late John Campion, who who died recently, he was there with uh, several of his cars from his collection, um, including a, a, a Lancia Delta S4, um, a, a Rally 037, and uh, uh, several others, and. Uh, Jim Glickenhouse has been a, a regular participant at the uh, the Concours of America. Uh, hopefully, he'll be back this year. One of the the uh, the really interesting classes they've got this year that they announced um, is the design class, the special design class this year, which is going to be judged by a group of automotive designers, um, is the wedge class. Uh, so it's 1970s wedge cars. <clears throat> you know that oh, that cool. design trend we had in the 1970s. So um, my friend Richard Truitt, who writes for uh, Automotive News, he's going to be there with one of his TR8s uh, in that class. There's, uh, uh, I'm sure that there will probably be a Lotus Esprit and maybe a Lamborghini Countach. But I'll be I'll be fascinated to see that. But um, you know, what do you, what do you guys think about these sorts of shows like Pebble Beach and Greenwich and Amelia Island? Have you, have you attended any of these? And what do you think about going to these events? I've never been to it because there's nothing that's really close to me at all. They're always a pretty good hike. So I've never been to one. There's a lot of appeal to them, but I think the idea, like you're saying, this one has like stuff for drag racing. And I think there's something to be said for having some more approachable cars. Like they don't have to be all these fancy, perfectly restored to the bolt, uh, you know, thing from 1928 or whatever. Those are always beautiful, but it's kind of neat. To, I like seeing cars that... I feel like real people love and drive and loved and drive drove at some point, not just something that's been sitting in someone's garage as a showpiece. As beautiful as those are, I like, I don't know, I like the cars that were real cars and once upon a time they were, they were what we saw on the street and everybody was driving or everybody was coveting them. So like the wedge cars you're talking about, which make me think of James Bond, every single one of them. I don't care what the, I don't care. They're all James Bond cars. That's cool. I think that's kind of fun. And so I think these kinds of shows are neat. I think they keep an interest in the heritage of automotive design alive. And I think they're for people who are, 
interested in automotive and interested in design, it's probably fascinating to see that, to be able to see how much things have changed and to know that what they were making not 50 years ago, but 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, is very different than what they're making today. And there's always a chance to do something new and to iterate that design into something new and exciting. I think that's kind of cool. I've been to Pebble Beach, I don't know, a bunch of times. And it's on one hand, you're just like, okay, I've seen, I feel like I've seen this... Uh, I've seen this Model T again and again and again. you know there's a lot of cars there that you know it's the same cars over and over and over again and it is someone with a lot of money who, fl- who flew in on a private jet and this car was trucked in and is kept in a uh, hermetically sealed vault somewhere uh, with the with the humidity set at like the perfect you know it's 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 their Model T and their cigars like both of them are set kept in the same room. <laughs> Um, I think the, 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 it's it's kind of one common humidor yeah, for the cars yeah, and the cigars. Yeah. Um, so you know those are they're they're fun to look at like once maybe twice, but then you're just like okay, this is again this is a car that's you know it, it was it was driven you know a hundred years ago, <laughs> and now someone's just like been babying it for the last forty fifty years. Um, and there's a lot of cars like that, especially at Pebble Beach. I think Pebble Beach is where you know you really go and you're like okay. This is where all the the fancy rich people put their money, um, but you do see, you know, some weird older vehicles. Um, I'm always uh, fascinated whenever I see something from you know like China or from from Russia, but you know, that's few and far between at, at Pebble Beach. And there's a lot of old Ferraris, which are always cool to look at. But you, you know, once you see one for old Ferrari, you see them sort of all. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more excited about the, the concourse of America, but it, it is in Detroit, which means I, I probably won't be going to it. Um, I actually won't be going to uh, Pebble Beach this year to the to the concourse just because it's I, scheduling uh, conflicts. But the, having said all the, that, it's if you're a car person, going to these are, is is outstanding because you know you are going to see the the museum pieces, the cars that haven't been driven, the cars that are in like just ridiculous pristine condition. But you're also going to see like you know weird little things here and there that have somehow slipped in that the the, the organizers are like, well, okay, let's 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 let an MG midget in. Okay, one, we'll let one in. That someone like took took good care of, or maybe the Batmobile will be there, <laughs> or maybe, you know, it's it's, and there's always the, there, there's the cars in the the periphery, you know, people bring their cars, and sometimes you'll see some interesting stuff, and you can strike up conversations with with people. Um, I I uh, a, a fun story I like to tell at Pebble Beach was I was talking to my friend about, um, they had the they had the Japanese cars, uh, for I think Infinity had a Japanese cars, uh, they were showing off. And I was talking about my uh, 69 Datsun Roadster, my very first car. And I was trying to buy it back, and I wanted to buy it back and make it in, into an electric car. That's sort of my dream is to, to buy it back from a friend of mine, make it into an electric car, have a, you know, a little low-mileage electric car to drive around um, my neighborhood. And this woman behind me, she heard me talking about the car. She's like, oh, yeah, I had a 1600, and I had a 2000. I'm like, oh, great. And then I was sort of you know, kind of afraid to say, yeah, I want to I wanna do a retro mod on it and make an electric car because – I'm at Pebble Beach where everything is, it has to be exactly how it was <laughs> when it came off the factory floor. And it turns out she's, she was, uh, she, her and her husband own the, uh, the EV conversion company in San Diego um, that does all the Volkswagens and Porsches and stuff like that. So it, it was just like, you know, a fun little, ha- you know, conversation that I had with someone who was also a car person. And so, you know, those things sort of pop up and, you, you know, maybe you'll make some friends or some contacts or whatever. So it's, it, those are fun, but you know, you can also just go to a car show on your block if you're lucky. 
I think yeah. today is probably a good day yeah. to to go to car shows yeah. at, at neighborhood parks. It's Fourth of July when we're we're. Uh... Yeah, no, I'm sure there's there's plenty of uh, good car shows around. Uh, you know, I was just at a Cars and Coffee yesterday, where uh, you know there was a a very uh, eclectic collection of, of vehicles. You know, from uh, you know old American muscle cars to you know to modern you know uh, supercars. You know, there was a uh, a Lamborghini there. There was a um, an early 2010s uh, Porsche Cayman. Somebody had an original 1964 co- 289 Cobra. Uh, there was there not not a replica, wow. but the real thing. Um, but uh, you know, again, one one of the other cool things about the the Concours of America, and, and you know, with Pebble Beach, there's all kinds of other events that go on. You know, they call it Monterey Car Week now. There's all kinds of other events yeah. going on around that you know that week around that event. Um, you know, the, and the, you know, the, the event here, you know, lasts, uh, you know, typically three days. Um, and there's actually some stuff that goes on earlier in the week. Uh, but, uh, on the Saturday morning, the, the show is on Sunday, the, the official concourse is on Sunday, but on Saturday they have, uh, some cool events. There's a, a ride and drive program. There's a cars and coffee, and there's also the concourse to lemons, uh, which is specifically for, you know, you know, beaters and all kinds of oddball stuff that you can bring and that's you know those things are all free uh and open to the public you don't have to have a ticket or or buy a ticket for anything uh which is fun the uh the whole event this year uh runs from july 23rd to the 25th um of uh, of this year uh friday saturday and sunday and uh and i'll have a, a link on the in the show notes where you can buy tickets for the concours if you're interested and it runs from 10 to 4 30 on july 20 10 a.m to 4 30 p.m on july 25th um and uh, uh let's see what else um yeah and there's all there's also some uh, on saturday there's some interesting seminars uh you know on various topics if uh that you might be uh interested in it. one of the uh, cars that's going to be on display at the concours is uh black ghost uh a 1970 dodge charger that is in the uh the uh, detroit muscle cars 70 to 71 um class and there's also another seminar on the uh the ferrari monza um and they had one at the uh, the press conference there's actually going to be four of these modern ferrari monzas at the show on sunday wow. uh, so lots of, lots of interesting things to do um all right Next up, um, GM made an announcement this week. You know, we've, we've been hearing all kinds of announcements over the last six, 12 months about car companies getting into, you know, they're, they're going to be building all these EVs and then they're going to be getting investing in building their own batteries. And of course, if you're going to build batteries, you got to have the raw materials for those batteries. And right now, you know, for the batteries and EVs, you know, we rely a lot on things like lithium and nickel and manganese and cobalt. And most of that stuff currently is not produced in North America. You know, the, if they're going to produce batteries here, you know, they've got to have the raw materials. And, you know, the, most of the, the lithium used in batteries today is mined in either South America or Australia. Most of it's processed in China. And then it's got to be shipped here to make batteries. And, you know, lithium is very common in you know, in the earth and you know, in the environment, but um, there just hasn't been very much of it actually mined. And so GM is partnering with a company called Controlled Thermal uh, Resources uh, to uh, produce lithium in Southern California uh, from uh, a geothermal field. 
And uh, so this this is kind of a um, an interesting approach, you know, because you know one of the challenges you know with with producing the raw materials is you got a lot of um, processing that has to happen, which in itself, you know, in addition to the mining, actually you know takes energy as well. And so uh, the Salton Sea in Southern California, they've been developing uh, geothermal uh, power uh, production using the the hot steam coming out of there out of these ge- out of this geothermal field to run turbines to generate electricity. And what CTR want is going to be doing, and they they started prototyping this, and they're going to ha- they plan to have a pilot production facility running by 2024, uh, is to extract the uh, the brine, the hot brine, from this geothermal field, separate the steam from it to run the turbine, and then use that electricity that they're generating. Some of it will be used to separate the lithium from the brine, and the rest will give, get fed back into the grid. And then once the lithium is extracted, the brine gets pumped back into, into the, the geothermal field. Um, and so this is potentially going to be a very low-cost, low-carbon or no-carbon um, approach to lithium production. And GM thinks that they can um, get all the, the lithium that they need for their North American production out of facilities like this. Um, what do you guys think about you know, mining and, and development of, you know, of these resources to, in order to make this transition to EVs? I mean, I think it's a good idea to come up with sources that are outside of the traditional means that we have right now. I mean, if we're going to have that many EVs, you got to come up with something else to get some of these products. Did they say, Sam, is this, are they going to have to open a whole bunch of places like this in order to support the lithium that they're going to need? Or was this one, did they say like, this will provide us with 25%. Like how many of these do they need to make that happen? they're not sure yet. Um, okay. You know, that's that's something they're still. I mean, this is still a process that's in development. Um, but uh, you know, uh, you know, I talked to uh, Tim Grew, who is the director of electrification strategy at GM, and at the end of the episode, I'll I'll include uh, um, the interview with Tim. Um, we'll pat and paste that in here. But um, you know, he thinks that you know by the end of the decade, they can be producing all of the lithium that they need for their North American production. You know, and, and what, what they're trying to do is move towards localization of a lot of the resources. You know, so for stuff they're doing in China, they'll, they'll get it locally in China. For stuff in North America, they'll do it here and, and so on. Because um, you know, that, that also dramatically reduces their transportation costs for moving all these raw materials around. Um, so he, he does think that they can get all the lithium they need in North America by the end of the, by the, end of the 2020s. But whether it'll all be from this facility or from a mix of this and other facilities, they don't know yet. Interesting. Well, I mean, it it, it seems like they're what what I what I appreciate is they're they're trying to to come up with these these processes that aren't as um, uh, as bad as you know the the petroleum industry. I mean, we use petroleum for a lot of things, not just for for gasoline, but. Uh, you can just look at the the Gulf of Mexico this week where the the water was on fire. <laughs> so if we can reduce the ocean being ablaze like it's like 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 it's 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 the, the beginning yeah, of Pacific Rim. Yeah, if we can if we can find ways to to sort of reduce our our insane impact on the planet, and we're always going to have an impact on the planet regardless of of what we do. But you know we want to reduce that as much as possible because at the end of the day. Um, 
if things go awry, it's not the planet that's going to go away. It's going to be us. The planet will be fine. The planet will just reset itself and everything will grow again and we'll be all gone. So, you know, when you when you really think about it, <laughs> like being environmentally uh, sane is uh, for the longevity of, you know, the human race. How about that? And so if you can, you know, if, if you know, as, as electrification becomes more and more the, the future of transportation, we got to figure out ways to, to make sure that we're able to source all this stuff without, you know, repeating the mistakes of the past. And I think this this sort of helps. OK. So with that, why don't we move into some listener questions for this week? And we've got uh, got quite a few of them. Um, so let's start off with Coach Cabrera. This is actually one from last week that came in after we recorded the show. Um, do you think the EPA and states will continue to tighten smog requirements to get older cars off the road? What do you think? I think the EPA, it really comes down to the individual states, I think, still, especially with California. I live in California, so we have, you know, the strictest um, emission standards in, in the country. And a lot of states sort of follow suit to whatever California is doing. Getting older cars off the road is a bit tricky because you have to take into account that some of those older cars are used, you know, not everyone can afford an EV. You know, I, you know, the, the average, you know, if, if you're working class, you know, it's, it's fun to be like, hey, we all moved to EVs and the earth's going to be great. Um, yeah, but not, that doesn't mean people, you know, $35,000 for a car, even if it's, you know, it isn't going to work for a lot of people. You know, they still have to buy, you know, these older vehicles, these gas powered vehicles. And, you know, a used car is, is, you know, is in, environmentally sound. Buying a used car is environmentally sound because you're not having, you know, the the initial cost uh, of of the you know the 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 building that car is it takes sort of energy gone. to build a car yeah it takes energy yeah, right. to build a car it takes a village people a village of energy and so <laughs> I think the old cars off the road I, I there might be another cash for clunkers type uh, situation in the future um, I was kind of hoping there'd be one like a like a you know a, an EV for clunkers um, thing but I don't think that's that's going to happen anytime soon but I think that's probably more what we're going to see as opposed to you know taking older cars off the road now reducing the amount of new cars that are that are gas powered that's that's definitely going to keep happening yeah i think they'll continue to do it not so much like you said not to get old cars off the road because there are people who who are driving older cars because it's all they can afford and you know if you need a used car it's not going to be a, a 2020 it's going to be you know if you're if you're tight on cash it's going to be a 2012 or something and it's not going to get the fuel economy of anything that we're doing today and it's not going to you know the smog requirements that were existing then are totally different and i think people you have to be really careful of of trying to do things that make the environment better which is a worthy cause but at the expense of people who still need to drive a car to get to a job that they really need and don't have a lot of options um, but i think that tightening those requirements it doesn't so much get older cars off the road sooner but i think it does encourage automakers to continue producing cars going forward that will meet those and then some yeah. and i think it does that more than pulling cars off the road because you can't you like you said you can't just okay we're going to price everybody who can't afford something made in 2018 right out of having a car yeah. you just can't do that you, you impact people's lives and their livelihoods too much so i think it's an admirable goal but i think there's a certain balance that has to be found there yeah yeah and you know as an example you know the uh, the average price, the average transaction price on new vehicles uh, recently hit 
just about forty thousand dollars. And actually, uh, this a wow. uh, couple of days ago, we hit um, we had the uh, the June uh, sales announcements from the automakers, and Ford, uh, for example, in their sales release, said that their a- average transaction price in the first half of this year was up to almost $47,000. And that, in part, that's because, uh, you know, they've discontinued all of their lower-end cars. That, you know, they, they no longer sell the Fiesta and the Focus and the Fusion. Um, you know, so, you know, they're selling nothing but, you know, SUVs and crossovers and trucks now, which are all considerably more expensive. So they're, you know, the average price of a Ford vehicle, you know, is almost $47,000, which is crazy. Um, you know, now that's, that's going to go down. That average is going to go down, you know, later this year when they launch the Maverick, uh, their small pickup, cause that's going to start at 20 grand. And, you know, they have also said that they're going to introduce, you know, some more affordable vehicles, affordable electric vehicles. So that'll help. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, a, the, the vast majority of people never buy a new car. They buy used cars. You know, you sell about three and a half times as many used cars every year as we sell new cars. And so, you know, most people rely on, you know, affordable used cars. So I think it would be it would be foolish to try and do something, you know, certainly, you know, you're not going to do anything uh, retroactively that says, you know, cars built before 2015, you know, suddenly have to have, you know, better emission controls than what they were originally built with. I mean, that would be that would be crazy. No, you know, nobody could afford that. Um, but um, you know, what you might see is some states that don't currently have you know emissions tests to in order to register your car, like you do in California and some states where you've got to take a smog test. You know, you might see some more states adopt those so that at least the older cars have to be kept up to the same standard as when they were new. But I think even that's going to be problematic because that's going to add costs for, you know, for a lot of people that rely on those cars for transportation. Um, and I think, you know, we're just going to have to, you know, hopefully the, the industry will, you know, work to bring some more affordable EVs to market, which, you know, will eventually trickle down into the used car market and, and, and make, you know, make those EVs more affordable to more people. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Next up, um, Brianna Wu, a friend of the show who was on uh, a couple of times, um, uh, way back, probably about three years ago now, um, asked, and, and Brianna is a fan of Porsches and she's got, I think three of them. I think she's got, uh, or maybe three. Yeah. Three. I think she's got a, an eight an 86 or 87, 911 Targa, um, a more, a newer, um, 17, 718 Cayman and also a 986 Boxster, the first gen Boxster says, uh, do you think, uh, 90, 986 Boxster prices will stay at the current level? Uh, is it on the verge of becoming a modern classic? Um, you know, we've seen over the past year or two that a lot of cars, especially Porsches have climbed dramatically in price. Um, you know, and the the nine the first generation Boxsters are still relatively affordable by you know by Porsche standards. You know, at least to buy, <laughs> and maybe not necessarily to to keep them running and maintain them. But what do you yeah. what do you guys think? I, I you know what when I when anything that was built in the '90s and the early 2000s right now 
is is the prices are just ridiculous and i don't see i don't see those prices going down at any point i think generation x is you know we're we're we're, we're getting a little bit of money um some of the millennials are certainly you know they they i think they're looking at these older vehicles as like oh like you know maybe uh gen x may have looked at, at boomer vehicles before but i think there's there's I don't I don't see the prices of a, of a Boxster going down, which is sort of funny because I remember a lot of people in the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s sort of like poo pooing the Boxster. They're like, what is this? This is an, this is what is this? And now I think a lot of people kind of come full circle. We're like, oh, you know, the Boxster might be a nice car. You know, you could convertible drive it around. It'd be great. So I anything hangs around long enough and suddenly becomes cool again, you know, and I think that's where the Boxster is right now. I think, and I, I don't think it's going to get any cheaper. I think people like them. It's going to stay there. Yeah. 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 And, and looking at the, the Haggerty valuation tool, um, you know, for a 97 Boxster, you know, that was the first model year of the Boxster, um, you know, a Concours quality one, they value currently value at $25,000 and, and excellent quality. <laughs> they put it 16, five, um, you know, and, you know, the, the, the cool thing about the Haggerty tools, it does show you the, the change in value, you know, the values over time. And they've, they've actually been, the Boxsters have actually been fairly steady for the last three years. Uh, you know, they, they've, the price has been fr- pretty flat, but they have had a, a bit of an uptick in the first half of 2021. Um, and in fact, you can get, uh, you know, a good one uh, for, it says 9,800. Uh, you know, so, you know, 10 grand for a Porsche is, is pretty cheap. You know, of course, parts are going to cost you a fortune, but, um, you know, that's, that's not a crazy amount of money for a, a used car like this. Um, but, you know, as the prices of 911s and, you know, other, particularly 911s, but, you know, other Porsche sports cars have gone through the roof in the last couple of years. Um, you know, I think, you know, more and more people are going to be taking a look at the Boxster as a viable option. And I, I, I would be shocked if these prices don't go up significantly in the next 12 to 18 months. Oh, yeah. They're gonna... Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, also, another question from Brianna. Uh, there's a white 90s Toyota Supra just decaying on my block, and I want to give it a good home. Um, and uh, she wonders about, you know, whether it's okay to – uh, to go and, you know, knock on the door and to offer to buy it. Uh, what do you think? I, I had a, what did I have? I don't know. I had a car and I kept having people, it was, it was, I, I didn't have the money to fix it <clears throat> for a few months. I was in college and I kept having people put, um, notes on my car. Oh, it was my 90 Honda Civic, Honda Civic hatchback. And this is like the late nineties. And I kept having people put notes on the car to buy the car with the phone numbers and stuff. And I wasn't like appalled or annoyed or anything. I was like, oh, well, if I, this is an opportunity. If I ever want to sell it, I can. I think putting a note on the car might be uh, nice. Um, I saw a gentleman with, a, with an M3 um, a few years ago. Uh, not a few years ago, like a, six months ago. I gave him my business card. <laughs> I'm like, if you ever want to sell this, <laughs> give me a holler. Um, so I don't think it's, it's out of the question to sort of ask people. And some, you know, the, the, the idea of keeping... Uh, a, a, a project car forever and never doing anything with it. Um, you know, a lot of people do that. They're like, oh, any day I'm going to work on this. Any day I'm going to work on this. Any day I'm going to work on this. And maybe that that note or that knock on the door. I think right now probably a note would probably be safer just because people are still a little nervous about people coming to the door because of COVID. But 
I think a note might be the thing that sort of pushes them over the edge. And you're like, hey, you know, I see this. Or if you ever want to sell it, please, you know, be sure to contact me sort of thing. So I, I, don't, I don't see why anyone would be angry about that. I would. Yeah, I'd leave a note or knock on the door. And why, why not? At the very least, what you're saying to someone is, you know, hey, I love your car. You aren't looking to sell that by any chance. I mean, it's not like, hey, your car. If you were to say, like, that thing's just falling apart in your driveway. Can I buy that off of you because it's an eyesore? That's one thing. <laughs> but, hey, yeah. your car's really cool. Are you looking to sell it? I don't think anyone's going to get upset about that. It's all in how you present it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to- totally agree. And, and you know, like I said, like I said you know, if it's something that, you know, somebody just hasn't figured out what they want to do with and, you know, you're willing to put in the effort to, to fix it up and, and get it running again, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's better it's better to have you know somebody that wants it and and has the resources to do something with it than to just let it continue to decay. Yeah. All right. Next up, Coach Cabrera asks: Are EVs considered a luxury car? A Model Three feels very plasticky compared to a gas or hybrid car at the same price point. I mean, this just comes down to who's building that EV. I mean, I've sat in the EQS, and that feels very much like a very f- futuristic S-Class. And, of course, the S-Class is the S-Class. It's the, you know, the, the, the luxury of luxury cars. So I think it really comes down to the automaker and what they're, where they're positioning that car. I mean, Tesla's money has to go into batteries and, and, and motors. It, you know, it doesn't really go all that much into the interiors. The interiors are still pretty sparse. They're not the sort of minimalism that you get in a Volvo. It's something completely different. And, you know, it doesn't feel very luxury when you get into a Tesla. And I, I haven't gotten to the new Model S Plaid. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's really down to the automaker and, and where they're going to position that car now, I think. I don't, I don't think they're flat out considered luxury cars, but I do think there's a, um, even with a cheap EV, what could they like a Leaf or something, there's still a sense of exclusivity to having an EV. Not necessarily that it's a luxury car, but that if you have one, and now you guys, well, you, Roberto, you're in California and EVs are really popular. Here they're not. I'm in the Northeast and you don't see them like you do out there. So there's a certain sense of like, oh, they have an EV. That's, that's unique. That's different. Not necessarily that it's a luxury thing, but just that, okay, you're thinking a little outside the box and that's kind of cool and it's sort of exclusive here, whether you're buying a, a leaf or you're buying a tesla or, or whatever so there is definitely a different you know i don't think they're considered luxury cars but i do think a people a lot of people look at them as being sort of exclusive and different and unique regardless of whether they have a plasticky interior or a really beautiful interior yeah i mean when they first launched the model s you know it was fairly expensive and, and remains expensive uh, to this day yeah you know, and it was Compared against a lot of luxury brands like you know BMW and and Audi and and Mercedes Benz, because it was at a similar price point to those vehicles, and you know similarly the Model Three, you know is is in the same price range as a three series, um, you know. But I think just because something is expensive doesn't necessarily make it luxury. I think you know luxury is something very different. You can have something that is relatively affordable, you know, like say a, a Mazda. That feels more premium. It feels more luxury, um, but is not not necessarily priced that way. And you know, conversely, you can have you know something that is more expensive but doesn't feel like a luxury car. Um, so you know, it's certainly a premium 
car based on its price point. But I, you know, I would not certainly the Model Three or the Model Y. I, I don't think I would consider those to be luxury cars. Um, but I think I think we will, you know, start to see more affordable. Uh, we're, we are going to see more affordable EVs coming to the market. Um, you know, over the next couple of years, you know, that are much more mainstream, you know, that have a similar price point. And, you know, another good example, the Chevy Bolt. Until the 2022 Bolt went on sale this spring, you know, the refreshed Bolt, um, the, uh, uh, you know, it it was typically priced around $40,000. And nobody would call that a luxury car. Uh, hey, uh, see, uh, Nicole, you've got to, you got to leave. Um, so, yeah, um, I've got a bail. My mom's sending me a message. I'm not quite sure what's okay. going on, but I got a bail. All right. Well, take care okay. and we'll, we'll talk to you later. We'll, okay. We'll, we'll wrap Sorry, up the last couple of questions here. Okay. Right. Sorry about that. Bye. No problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean the bolt, you know, a $40,000 bolt is certainly not a luxury car. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I, you got to separate price and, and, and luxury. They're, they're two, two different things. All right. Yeah. Uh, next up, AJ asks, is the Camaro going to survive? How did, G- how did GM go into Colorado Canyon without a plan for an SUV off that platform? Uh, so it's really two separate questions. So first, do you think the Camaro is going to survive? I'm surprised it's still around. It just like, <laughs> I think it's, I just did a quick search and I think the, the 2020 uh, sales um, during the calendar year decreased by 38%. So it's yeah yeah well I mean so 2020 30, was was not a great year for yeah but for those kind but of it's cars, also but. thirty thousand units is not a lot of cars for a big company like you know like like GM so it's it's ooh I don't I don't know I mean maybe they they might do a refresh maybe they might do a a, a sort of another nod to the past a little bit to try to try to try to sort of get get the get people excited about it. like people are excited about the mustang and about the challengers um but yeah that's it's that's a i i'm sure there are people at gm right now who are like what are we gonna do about the camaro we're we gonna let it like run out and then just not not uh refresh it or are we going to go all in and and you know try to try to hit that nostalgia hit that everyone you know we got the nissan proto we got the you know the mustang we got the, you know anything that's old is new again are they going to try that again <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the Camaro is certainly not as old as the Challenger, and Dodge has managed to keep, you know, that one, you know, fresh with, you know, continuously more powerful versions of the Hellcat, and you know that thing's selling better than it ever has. Um, yeah. So it, it's not, yeah, you know, it's not the you know an old car can't sell well, but you know the, this current generation Camaro has always, uh, it, it's never met expectations in terms of sales. Um, you know, as, as good as it might be in a lot of respects. I, I think that, you know, they'll probably keep it going for a couple more years, uh, you know, basically just kind of chugging along with maybe some mild updates. Um, and then, you know, there has been some speculation that they might move it to an EV platform, you know, make make it make the next generation Camaro electric, yeah. which could be interesting. Give it, a, give it a lapse of a few years, let it just sort of go away and then bring it back like the Hummer and make it an EV. The Camaro EV! Muscle yeah. car, American Lightning, you know stuff like that. It's certain. It's certainly doable. I mean, you know, we've we've seen other manufacturers do it. Um, and what about the uh, the Colorado Canyon and, and the lack of an SUV off of that platform? I, I anytime someone isn't making an SUV, I'm always wondering why. There must be some reason. <laughs> I feel like because they're just they're they're you know SUVs and trucks. They can charge a premium for 
almost the same amount of stuff as you have in a sedan. Um, and so why why haven't you done that? So I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm perplexed as well. Maybe you have some better insight as a former. I yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's no reason they, there was no reason they couldn't do it, you know. And I think you know, there, there's again, it's another one where there's been speculation at various times that um, you know they were going to do um, some sort of GMC off-roader, you know, to challenge the Wrangler and now the Bronco, uh, which they've never done. I mean, that would be the the obvious platform to use as the basis for that. And for yeah. whatever reason, they've they've never given the green light to that program. Um, you know, I think again now, you know, it's at the point where GM is, you know, going all in on EVs. I think that they're probably going to let, you know, let the Colorado Canyon run its course. Uh, you know, do some updates to it over the next few years, and and then you know, do you know if they're going to do that GMC Wrangler uh, Challenger, then um, you know, make it electric. You know, do use the Altium platform, and you know, do you know like. You know, in the past with the Hummer, you had the the Hummer H2 and the H3, which was off the you know off the previous generation Trailblazer platform. Um, do you know do something similar with with this one? Um, you know, make a, a smaller a smaller Hummer. You know, yeah. essentially an H an electric H3. Some, something that doesn't weigh uh, nine thousand pounds. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> All right, last question from Mike Enos. Uh, how long until the non-Tesla charging experience is good enough? And you've you've also had the chance to drive some EVs uh, that are that are not Teslas, just as I have. You know, what's your experience been like with charging at Electrify America, ChargePoint, EVGo, and you know, what, when do you think they'll finally get their act together? It's getting better. It is a it, there's a progression of them getting better. I think the charge points and the the sort of smaller companies that have been around forever like there wasn't a lot of evs so they're not getting a lot of money in order to make their systems better before you know every time you went to a charge point you had to you know you had to have an account you had to have this you had to do this if you know and they're, they're getting to the point where now they accept uh you know uh, a credit card or you know if you have a mustang mach went into electrify america i just plugged it in and it's, it's it's getting there i think there's some growing pains especially for electrify america they're sort of the sort of de facto challenger right now to um, tesla's uh supercharger network they are and they're investing heavily and building out very quickly um but there have been a lot of growing pains you know you you hear stories of like oh yeah half of these electrify america stations aren't working or they'll get there and there's maintenance going on so i there are growing pains for 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 these um, for these for these companies and for these charging stations, but I think they're they're getting there. I think we're probably about 18 months, two years before um, when you pull up to it's just Electrify America or any of them where it feels as seamless as a Tesla station. I think there's you know I'm you know I'm, I'm and giving them a little bit of leeway, but you know two years is a long time in the EV world, and at that point we're gonna have so you know we're We'll probably have more EVs on the road, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the roadmaps for a lot of OEMs. Um, and so I think it's 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 you, know, you have to be good enough. You have to be uh, as as seamless as as gas. And I I don't think it's they're they're quite there yet. Yeah, I think you know the the plug and charge standard, which EA was the first uh, charging company to adopt that. Um, goes a long way in that direction. Um, right now, I've got a VW ID4, which we'll talk about next week. And I went to the EA station down the road uh, yesterday to charge it up. And 
you know, it, like uh, the Mach-E, you know, it, it also has support for plug and charge. And I pulled in the first charging stall I, I went to plug it into. It, it, I plugged it in. It wouldn't communicate with the stall. You know, it wouldn't. <laughs> said, sorry, can't do anything. Don't, don't know what to do. Uh, and threw up some error code. Uh, so I pulled over into the next stall and plugged it in there. And I plugged it in. And it authenticated and just started charging automatically. I didn't have to mess around with anything. It was all the car was already set up on the EA network, and you know it it just it took care of it. And that's the way it should be. Um, EA has had some issues with one of their suppliers of charging the the, the actual charging equipment, and they have um, stopped doing business with that particular supplier, and they're going back and retrofitting uh, a couple hundred of their stations with new chargers from a different vendor, um, the, the vendor they've been using, that they used for the rest of their stations. And hopefully that will take care of it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely an issue that all of the charging providers, and we're actually, actually working on scheduling, uh, getting somebody from ChargePoint on the show uh, probably in a couple of weeks uh, to join us to talk about some of these problems. And so we'll, we'll dive in a little deeper into that. But it, you know, as we start to get all these EVs coming to market, the the charging providers really need to to get their act together and make sure that those things are working all the time. That they have to be as reliable or more reliable than gas stations. Yeah. Because um, otherwise, you know, people aren't going to want to buy EVs. Yeah, and and the the issue for a lot of them is that char- uh, Electrify America, all these, they actually have to have the car in their their shop in order to make sure that the software handshake between the car and the charging station uh, works. It's not like, you know, you just build a car and you just take that car to the gas station and you put gas in it. Like there has to be a connection between that vehicle and the charging station in order for the whole system to work. And they have to, every car is a little bit different and every, you know, so they have to bring these cars in and make sure that they work and then send it back to the, the automaker or they have to fix their end. It's, yeah, it's, it's a bit more complicated than, than just like, hey, a car, plug it into the wall like you would your yeah. phone. You're like, no, not really. <laughs> Even that doesn't always work. I mean, I've, you know, I've had issues with that too, where you know, I've, I've had cars that I plug in, and as soon as I plug it in, you know, it'll trip circuit breaker or trip a GFCI oh, yeah. outlet because because there was an issue w- again with the communications and what the car was trying to pull. So you know, even even home charging, it you know, there there are issues. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, you go to a gas station. You stick the nozzle in the hole and pull the trigger, and it starts flowing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it doesn't. It doesn't. The the pump, the gas pump, doesn't care what kind of car it is, as long as it's got the right size filler neck, and you can stick the nozzle in there. Mm-hmm. But you know, you've got a lot of communications going on back and forth between the the car and the charger. Uh, you know, both to authenticate the car, you know, figure out which car it is, so they can bill you correctly. Uh, but then also, you know. Because, you know, not every car will accept a charge at the same rate. So the car has to tell the charger, okay, I'm good for 125 kilowatts or I'm good for 350 kilowatts or I'm good for 150. And, you know, because you, you can't, the charger can't pump in more electrons, you know, or pump the electrons in faster than the battery in that car can accept it. So there's all these things that have to be negotiated between the car and the charger before it all works. And, and you know, so there's hardware issues and there's a lot of software things that have to be worked out. Yeah. And in the case of Tesla, you know, they're, 
you know, because superchargers only work with Tesla vehicles, it's a lot easier. It's kind of, it's kind of like with, you know, a, you know, Apple Macintosh versus Windows, you know, Apple only has to support one brand of computers with their operating system, yeah. with Mac OS or iOS, you know, with their devices. And, you know, um, Microsoft has to support hundreds of different brands of computers with all kinds of different hardware configurations. So it does become more of a challenge, but hopefully we'll get it sorted out. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you very much. Keep listening right after this for my interview that I did with Tim Grew, the Director of Electrification Strategy at General Motors, about their partnership with Controlled Thermal Resources to manufacture low-carbon and low-cost lithium in California. Robbie, any uh, last thoughts? Uh, no, have a, have a good week, people. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye. Talking today with uh, Tim Grew, the uh, director of electrification strategy. I believe that's the correct title, right? Um, at General Motors, and um, uh, Tim, uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, you've just announced uh, this morning that uh, General Motors is investing uh, or partnering with—I don't know if there's actually an equity investment—in uh, a company called. Um, ooh, I've, Controlled thermal resources, yeah. And controlled thermal resources, yes. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to and, jump in uh, on you. Sorry. I, yeah. No. I'm no. A, no I, I appreciate yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> and uh, and and the the goal is to uh, uh, start localizing production of lithium, which obviously you know with uh, the announcements that uh, GM has made of its plans for uh, cell production over the coming years. Uh, now you're up to four plants through your joint venture with LG Chem, which is LTM Cells LLC. That's a lot of batteries. That's gonna require a lot of lithium. And currently, uh, most of the lithium that's used in batteries, I believe is sourced primarily from South America and from Australia. And, and most of it, as far as I know, is processed in China. Um, so what what is the advantage um, for, for GM or for any automaker with uh, trying to localize um, lithium production, uh, you know, both the, the mining and extraction and the processing of lithium for batteries? Yeah, so um, with anything, when you're dealing with a high volume manufacturing situation, we've, we basically have a situation where we wanna do the best value with the highest quality um, for our customers. And so if you look at this investment, it's really to accelerate the innovation of this, you know, lithium extraction and purification. And if, if you look at, uh, you know, CTR controlled thermal resources, right, they have a very novel process um, with very low carbon footprint uh, from a geothermal lithium field, where you can take this geothermal brine and then you can directly extract the lithium from it. And it's high quality lithium. And so we're always searching for the best innovations in the value chain here to get the best lithium at the lowest cost within the region of manufacture. And so we're going to make a lot of vehicles in North America, and it's a very natural thing to have us, you know, invest in this. Now, it's not finished yet, right? This is truly an innovation investment. And more importantly, it's a commercial collaboration to say, well, how do we work together to take the best of their experts plus the best of General Motors experts to really drive this cost of lithium down on this direct extraction process? And 
And so, uh, and interrupt me, Sam, if I'm going on too long, but I just love talking about this stuff. Um, it, it, it's right really, ahead. yeah, it's really all about, you know, how do you, you know, find these fundamental differences where there are no tailings, right? It's low carbon, but it also is not weather dependent as many mining operations are. And so you can run 24 seven in a continuous process to feed the plants. And it, they've got a great um, leadership team there with a, an, uh, a great technology that we'll go then try to enhance and accelerate. And, you know, we're really talking about bringing on a very revolutionary process in 2024 or sooner um, just to support our, our EV and autonomous vehicle, uh, you know, 2035, uh, you know, zero tailpipe emissions goal of General Motors. And so I always like to say, um, we say what we do and we do what we say. And when it, when it comes to this, this is an example of what I call the continuous innovation that GM does. Um, if we look at our innovation, we have continuous innovation where we're working on the supply chain, we're getting more operating equipment efficiency. We're really bringing this cost down and keeping this quality system up. And that's coupled with our breakthrough innovation with like the Ultium platform is an example of that. And then it's our true next generation innovation coming forward where this lithium can feed even into the next generation cells in the future. And so this is a great example of some core continuous innovation that GM's the first uh, uh, one to invest in to try to accelerate it, to get it to be reality as fast as we possibly can. Yeah. So last fall when Tesla held their uh, battery day, uh, they talked about uh, doing uh, localized lithium production as well in, in Nevada. And they talked about a process where they dig up clay, mix it with salt, um, extract, use that would extract the lithium and then put the clay back in the ground. Can you talk a little bit more about the process that CTR is using? Cause I think it's, it's quite different from, from what Tesla is doing. Yeah. And it, but, but the fundamentals are the same, right? I mean, the lithium is mixed with undesirable material and, and essentially, you know, how efficiently and how low carbon you can pull that out of that undesired material and purify it is what you're looking for. And so, you know, I, I don't work for Tesla. I'm not a Tesla expert in any way, but in, in general, you know, you know, when you deal with uh, clay lithium, um, you described it fairly well, right? You've got to dig it up. You've got to put it through some type of a salt or a solvent to, to separate it and they have to return that material. And the great thing about the CTR process is with the geothermal brine, they've got a very innovative technology that directly gets that lithium out of there without additional steps. And that's why we are investing in it, trying to accelerate it. And, you know, it's to the point now where their prototypes are working well. We've got the lithium in. We, we, we have good results from their lithium uh, on the testing we've done so far with it. But we have to be very diligent and disciplined moving forward because lithium is the main transporter of these electric vehicles. You know, if you kind of get to the fundamentals of the electric car, the lithium ion will release an electron, let it run through a motor and then return it back into the lithium ion back and forth, you know, hundreds of thousands of times throughout the life cycle of the vehicle. And so we have to make sure that this lithium is pure. We have to make sure there's there's all this longevity associated with the purity of the lithium. And we have to also make sure that as we scale this thing up, that we can keep that 24 hour operation running and that it doesn't break down and it doesn't have high maintenance intervals. And that's part of the breakthrough innovation that we're working with CTR on to say, well, it looks really good now. Now let's go make it a reality. 
and you can imagine these industrialized plants, right? I mean, they are just massive plants that you have to ramp into improve every step of the way that you can keep that quality up and that 24 hour operation running with no breakdowns. And so that's the phase we're entering now that we're trying to accelerate, you know, even before 2024 to say we can really outdo a traditional mining technique, you know, which is as you described, right? Dig it up, separate it, uh, clean it, and then put put the, the tailings back in. And this is all just direct where we pull it straight out of the geothermal brine. So how much, you know, for a typical lithium ion battery, I mean, how much actual lithium do you need, like, you know, say per kilowatt hour of battery capacity? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so um, remember, if you do it in kilograms and things like that, it's a very light metal. So it's a little bit deceiving. Um, if I would say, you know, it's by weight, it's a relatively small percentage in a battery. Uh, but by purpose, it's the main transport medium. And so, you know, you, you want to make sure that it's pure, there's no impurities in it, and that it, it can transport throughout the life of the vehicle um, uh, through the separator and through the electrolyte. Um, so I, it's a relatively low number when it comes to, you know, the cell, the foil, the electrolyte, uh, the binders that you put in there. Uh, but it's got a very important job to do with throughout the life of the battery. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, right now, Ultium Cells has announced plans for four plants with, I think, roughly 140 gigawatt hours a year of capacity, you know, to support those four plants. And presumably there will be more at some stage. Um, you know, how many tons of lithium would you need, you know, for that uh, for that uh, capacity of, of batteries or cells? Yeah, uh, I don't have that number off the top of my head. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, a lot of that number is going to change throughout the year as we get more efficient with how we use this stuff. Uh, quite frankly, now we have a little bit of reserve lithium in our cells to make sure it lasts the life of the vehicle and in secondary use. And as we get better, we're going to try to do our best to reduce that. But, uh, uh, you know, it's tons and tons uh, okay. to make that happen. And, and you know, the, the good news is that the Imperial Valley there has got a lot of supply. And it could feed many, many of our factories. So, um, with uh, you know that that first pilot plant, uh, I, I guess it's a pilot plant that's expected to be up and running in about 2024. Um, what what do you see is the the time frame when you might be able to source uh, the lith all the lithium that you need at least for your North American facilities um, locally, you know, or in North America? Is that something this decade? Yeah, the, into the as 2030s? fast as we. Oh, way before then. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're moving fast at General Motors here, okay? And so it, it's all just, well, how do you make prudent investments? And we invest as soon as we have proof that we, we have the confidence to make it happen. And uh, I, I don't know if you caught one of our, our videos on the Hummer, um, but, you know, we talk about revolutionary innovation. And it, it's not just the innovators that know how it is today, but it's how they can make it in the future. And, and so we're looking for these revolutionary innovators to say, we've got enough confidence, go take that next step and make that investment to industrialize this. And, and so far it's worked out really well for us. Our joint venture with LG Energy Systems in Ohio with this collaboration and this commercial collaboration has yielded all kinds of efficiency improvements, all kinds of uh, manufacturing detail that the GM manufacturer 
manufacturing engineering group has brought to the LG energy systems manufacturing group. And we just are seeing multiple benefits from that. And so, you know, started in 2024, if it does prove to be the best thing for our customers, we will ramp it fast and we'll get everything we can out of it, uh, you know, within a couple of years. Um, you know, as you transition from, uh, you know, the NMC batteries you're using today in, in the Bolt and Bolt EV and EUV to NMCA for your Ultium cells, and then at some point to, you know, potentially to a lithium metal uh, cell that you've talked about with the, the work you're doing with SES. Do, does going from NMCA to a lithium metal, do, you know, how much impact does that have on the, you know, aside from what you've already described in terms of the efficiency of using lithium, just that sort of transition, does that have much of an impact on how much lithium you need to use? Um. It, it always is a little more efficient when we do our innovation technology like that. And so if you look at the NMC to the NMCA, the aluminum doping basically gives you a better structure so you don't have to overbuild the cathode as much to meet the life of the vehicle. And so that's a more efficient use of the lithium throughout the lifetime of the vehicle. As we move to lithium metal, we look to the same type of efficiencies to say it's going to get a little bit better. Now, categorically, it's not like it gets 50% better, right? We don't overbuild the cathodes by 50% um, today with extra lithium in there. It's more in the couple percent range that we do with that. And, you know, as the energy density goes up and these, these, uh, actual battery packs get smaller you know we had talked previously about the structure uh, of the battery pack well now that goes way down on the structural demand simply because the the lithium is the lithium cells are lighter and they take less space and so you get a lot of these multiplying effects going together where you know now the vehicle is actually a little less load on the battery as it's going the same distance and you can get less lithium from that as well at the system level and so I, I, I rambled on there, Sam, quite a bit with some assuming a lot of familiarity with you and your listeners. I hope that wasn't uh, yeah, no, it's good. good for you. No, that's good. And I'll, I'll put uh, in the show notes, I'll put a little glossary about what NMC and MCA and, and lithium metal mean as well. Um, so one, uh, yeah. you know, one, one last area, obviously, you know, last year and particularly 2021 has been particularly challenging for almost every industry, particularly the auto industry, um, in terms of supply chain resiliency. You know, I mean, everybody's been exposed to challenges with uh, silicon shortages. And, and so everybody's reevaluating their, how they manage their supply chains, where they're getting materials from. Um, how, you know, with the shift to, you know, uh, North American sourcing of lithium, how is this, how do you expect this to impact uh, GM uh, in terms of things like transportation costs and improving the resiliency of, of your supply chain? Yeah, there, there's, there's the obvious, you know, reduction in transportation costs that is kind of one for one and, and uh, you know, the cost of inventory as you're processing it, right? And, and you're not having to carry it on your books while you're turning it into a vehicle um, with all that. But, but more importantly, it's the, well, you also have to stabilize that material, okay? So we call it lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. And you have to stabilize that lithium just to get it from place to place and you get it into a cathode uh, active material manufacturing plant. Um, the real innovation that we're going for here is to say, well, how do we fundamentally take steps out? 
Okay, so that we don't have to, you know, have a, a six week shipboard uh, type type uh, shipment type situation uh, going forward. And by by localizing it and centralizing it in the regions of sale and, you know, Altium is a global product. There'll be multiple regions that we manufacture this in. Uh, we always look to minimize the fundamental uh, steps it takes to stabilize the material and get the high quality out of it. And so you can imagine that, um, you know, in the bulk shipping and, and uh, you know, that it's, it's not a huge burden today uh, to put it across the oceans um, and, and you save that. But the real benefit is, well, how can you innovate your processes so you take steps out to have the material be high quality and stable because it's just more local and there's less, you know, transit time. Do you see GM also getting into um, taking a more active or direct role in raw material sourcing for some of the other key materials in the cells as, as some other OEMs have done, uh, things like the nickel, the manganese. Sure. And, and for sure. Um, and, and if you look at what happens right now, I mean, we already have um, very well-established groups and well-established practice commercially and uh, quality system wise to go manage things like nickel. Because uh, we use it in our steel, uh, moving forward with that, and so so that's part of the groups that we're expanding. But it's always, and, and that's why we use the term strategic investment and commercial collaboration. Okay, because we we have to be humble, and you know you mentioned clay, uh, clay processing of lithium, right? And you know we think that the CTR method is much better and much more efficient and can run twenty four seven, but we may be wrong. And that industry is going to continue to innovate and move forward. And we always have to stay on top of this to have this agility to say, how are we going to get the best value for our customers to tie all this off and, and reach the bottom of that cost curve? You know, we talked about, you know, we're well under $100 um, at full scale on the Altium system. We don't know the bottom of it yet. And it's because of that humility that we have to say, we think this is great innovation today. We want to accelerate it, but we want to keep it the best innovation of tomorrow. And if there's something else out there that's better, we're going to be agile and shift into it. And that's a very constructive way, especially in an expanding industry, right? If you look at our $35 billion investment that we're putting into this, it's all expanding in these areas. Okay. And so you don't leave people behind. You just move with them into the next better technology and the next better innovation. And on that note, uh, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Tim. This has been a great conversation. And I appreciate your time. Yeah, it's great talking to you and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.